three. All right, let's do it. We're going again. Let's get it popping. Yeah, we've tried popping this off. like five times now, so uh, yeah, it's been. We're tough. gonna get started. Hi, well, Hi hello everyone. world. You're here at Known Unknowns. Uh, You're listening to world. Known Unknowns. Yeah, I just said that. I said it again. Okay, I'm Carly. I'm Harry. That's Harry. That's Carly. Oh, you didn't do it fast enough. You're fired. I'm Good. finding a new podcasting partner. And new partner. <gasps> oh. <laughs> Just kidding. Goodbye. Uh, anything new? I think we established that there was nothing new. We've in... been saying that nothing is new. Okay. As far as I can recollect. Um, I just want to announce, uh, again for me, first okay. time for you, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> last week I mentioned that I'm starting a blog. Well, don't ever ask me about it. <laughs> I just want to put that out there. It's a secret blog. Carly has a secret blog, and if you can find it, no, we will no. give you a prize. No, don't look for it. I don't want anyone reading it that I know. It's embarrassing that I have a blog. It has nothing to do with this podcast, so you won't even be interested in it. Mm -hmm. it you won't even... find it. I promise you won't find it. It's a not... few people know. I've it... told a few people, so if I've told you, I guess you can ask You can ask me about it. I'm fine with it, because I told you. Mm -hmm. But anyone else listening to this, don't ever ask me about the blog. I will ignore you, or I will ignore the fact that I have one. I'll say, what blog? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And it's not even an embarrassing blog. It is an embarrassing. It is an embarrassing blog. I mean, this is, well, if you tell people that, they're gonna want to find it. If you tell them that the blog is embarrassing. Okay, I'm done talking about this. All right. Fine. I'm done. Well, just don't look for my blog, and don't ask me about it. I won't answer. Okay. Talking to them, not you. Yeah. Uh. Anyway. So nothing's new. Do you have anything to share? <laughs> um, I don't think so. Kay. No. Okay. Oh, there's people outside talking, but it's fine. Okay, it has a little, a little bit of hometown flavor. Mm-hmm. Here in Chicago, I don't know if they can actually hear that though. Hey, maybe. Probably. Whatever, if you of... can hear what the people outside are saying, write in and we'll give you a prize. <laughs> Shut up. We will not give them a prize. If enough people do it, I'll draw a name and I'll give you a prize. We'll send you something. All right. But everyone So we will give you know, a prize. There's a prize involved if you write in and say, yes, I did hear those people talking outside. Maybe. We have the window open. That's why. Yeah. What do you mean, maybe? I guess well, if there's you just one said person, that... then no. There's yeah. Multiple people, then sure. Okay. Why not? You know. Yeah. Why? Well, I agree. Um. Well, I am ready to go. If you're ready to go, I have a. Anyway, are you ready to go? Yeah, I'm ready to go. Okay, so I'm first this week. <laughs> I'm very excited about my topic because I like it a lot. Good. And it's very long. Yay! So I'm gonna kind of try to power through here. Okay. Okay. But in a good way, not like I'm going to just like... Take your time. But it's extremely long. So buckle in. Stay with me. It's a wacky story. Okay. Ready? 
Yeah, so I, I heard this story on BuzzFeed Unsolved because that's where all of my inspiration comes from. But this story is very good. And mine is a much longer version. It's going to take more than the 20 minutes they took to oh, describe it. So it's much longer, much more detailed. I promise it's great. And when I went back and watched the BuzzFeed Unsolved episode, I realized that they got everything from the one article that I read. Actually, <laughs> I read a bunch of articles, but there was like a main one that when I copy and pasted it, I wanted to see how long it was. So I right. copy and pasted it into like Google Docs and it was like 44 pages long. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot Like of single pages. spaced, like normal, like it was crazy. It was Final. long. And I read the whole thing like three times today. So I, I realized... He, so every quote that comes from here is from that article. It's like the main one. It's by um, Reeves Weidman. Okay. And it's like in the New York something, magnet something. <laughs> okay. And it's very long. And he like investigated, not investigated, but like he went and did all the interviews and just did all the work on this story. Right. And all the other articles I wrote were basically like summarized versions of this mm -hmm. with like the exact quotes that this person i think this person is the first one to have like written about it or right. wrote like an in-depth like interview like they interviewed the family and the neighborhood uh-huh okay i just wanted to say that most of this comes from like quotes and stuff yeah <laughs> what are you doing i had a sheet wrapped around my leg and i was undoing it so i could more easily change positions Okay, um, so, are we ready mm -hmm. to begin? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. One night in June 2014. Oh, yeah, this is very recent, too. So, like, it started in 2014. Could you get positioned on the... Yeah, I'm ready. Could you stay in one spot, please? Yes, I'm ready. Thank you. Stop moving around, please. Thank you. Okay. <sighs> okay. One night in June 2014, Derek Broadus had just finished an evening of painting at his new home in Westfield, New Jersey, when he went outside to check the mail. Derek and his wife Maria had closed on the six-bedroom house at 657 Boulevard three days earlier and were doing some renovations before they moved in. So there wasn't much in the mail except a few bills and a white card-shaped envelope it was addressed in thick, clunky handwriting to the new owner. The new owner. And the typed note inside began, Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard. Okay, starting off great. Allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. Very nice. Yeah. For the Broadduses, buying 657 Boulevard had fulfilled a dream. Maria was raised in Westfield and the house was a few blocks from her childhood home. Derek grew up in the working, uh, working in a working class family in Maine, then moved his way up the ladder at an, at an insurance company in Manhattan to become a senior vice president with a salary large enough to afford the more than one point three million dollar house. Damn. Yeah. Okay, I don't really feel bad for these people anymore. Well, you that haven't was... heard the whole story. Yeah, but I know what's going to happen because I've heard it before. 
Okay, well, you haven't heard all the details I, before. No, I, I know the general outline. Okay. But as Derek kept reading the letter from his new neighbor, it took a turn. Quote, How did you end up here? Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force within? Ooh. 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have seen, I have put in, I've, oh, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched it in the 1960s. Now it is my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 yes. Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. End quote. I love it. Yeah, I know. The letter identified the Broaddus' Honda minivan as well as the workers renovating the home. Quote, I see already that you have flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it is supposed to be. As it was supposed to be. Tisk tisk tisk. Bad move. <laughs> you don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. You have children. I have seen them. So far, I think there are three that I have counted. End quote. They wrote before asking if there were, quote, more on the way. Mm -hmm. Quote, Do you need to fill the house with young blood I requested? Oh. Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family, or was it greed to bring me your children? <laughs> Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. <gasps> draw them. Mm -hmm. So, the envelope had no return address. Okay. Uh, who am I? The person wrote. And then here's more of the letter. Okay. There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I am in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I am in one. Look at any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people. Look out any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. Welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin. Yes. And then followed by a signature typed in a cursive font, The Watcher. <laughs> the Watcher. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yes. Ready? That's, that's go, the watcher, beginning. Go. The Watcher, everyone. Okay. So, it was after 10 p.m., and Derek Broaddus was alone. He raced around the house, turning off lights so no one could see inside, and then called the Westfield Police Department. An officer named came to the house, read the letter, and said, quote, What the fuck is this? <laughs> this will also show you how unnecessary police officers are. <laughs> this story. Uh, Derek rushed back to his wife and kids who were living at their old home elsewhere in Westfield. Mm -hmm. That night, Derek and Maria wrote an email to John and Andrea Woods the couple who sold them 657 Boulevard, okay. to ask if they had any idea who the Watcher might be or why they had written. Quote, I asked the Woods to bring... Oh, the, the letter said, I asked the Woods to bring me young blood, and it looks like they listened. Ooh. End quote. Yeah. Mm. Andrea Woods replied the next morning, a few days before moving out, the Woodses had also received a letter from the Watcher. The Watcher. 
The note had been odd, she said, and made similar mention of the watcher's family observing the house over time, but Andrea said that she and her husband had never received anything like it in their 23 years in the house and had thrown the letter away without much thought. Okay. That day, the Woodses went with Maria to the police station where Detective Leonard Lugo told her not to tell anyone about the letters, including her new neighbors, most of whom she had never met, and all of whom were now suspects. Mm. But, like, really, who gets a letter that's like, we're stalking your house, and just throws it away? (laughs) Yeah. But also, they're selling, like, someone, it was three days before they moved out of the house. Right, yeah. So I feel like like I'd be like... Glad I'm getting out of here. Yeah, like, just throw it away, no evidence, like, whatever. But Mm -hmm. why, I don't know, if they were trying to get rid of all the evidence, I don't know why they would just be like, yeah, we got a letter. Yeah, but they might need, they'd they'd have to, like, tell the people moving in, and then they might not want the house anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. So the Broadduses spent the coming weeks on high alert. When Derek gave a tour of the renovation to a couple on the block, he froze when the wife said, quote, It'll be nice to have some young blood in the neighborhood. Ooh. The Broadduses' general contractor arrived one morning to find that a heavy sign he'd hammered into the front yard had been ripped out overnight. Two weeks after the letter arrived, Maria stopped by the house to look at some paint samples and check the mail. She recognized the thick black lettering on a card-shaped envelope and called the police. Here's part of the envelope. Okay. Welcome again to your new home, or the letter. Welcome again to your new home at 657 (laughs) Boulevard. The workers have been busy and I have been watching you unload carfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster is a nice touch. Have they found what is in the walls yet? In time they will. This time the watcher had addressed Derek and Maria directly, but misspelling their names as Mr. and Mrs. Bradis, so Bradis is usually spelled... B-R-O-A-D-D-U-S, uh-huh. and he spelled it B-R-A-D-D-U-S, so we uh, forgot he he doesn't add the O. Interesting. The watcher learned a lot about the family in the preceding weeks, especially about their children. The letter identified the Broadduses' three kids by birth order and by their nicknames. Mm. That's creepy, right? It is, yeah. Ugh. Okay, part of the letter. I am pleased to know your names now and the name of the young blood you have brought to me. (laughs) You certainly say their names often. Uh, The letter asked about one child in particular whom the writer had seen using an easel inside an enclosed porch and asked, quote, is she the artist in the family? Okay, Okay, so at this point, I'm thinking that it's probably the people who just moved in and they're doing a hoax. They're like sending they're like sending the letters to themselves. Why? Um I don't know, because they want to like generate publicity to sell the house. You know, they're they're doing all this work on it. They want to flip it and they want to like generate, you know, more interest in the house. They want to sell it to like people who are interested in this weird thing that's going on. Okay. Well, maybe you'll change your mind. I don't think that. It is one of the theories, but I don't think it. Okay. And we'll get we'll, we'll get there. So, the letter continued. Here's a long portion of the letter that I think I should read. Okay. Because it's fun. Okay. <laughs> 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all of the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement? 
or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. (laughs) Will they sleep in the attic? Or will they all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher and have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. (laughs) The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too, Broadus family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought you to these to the past wait, greed is what brought the past three families to 657 <laughs> Boulevard. And now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving in day. You know I will be watching. Ooh. Okay, but like, think about getting that letter. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just thinking. Whew, okay. Derek and Maria stopped bringing their kids to the house. <laughs> they were no longer sure when or if they would move in, and several weeks later, a third lever- letter arrived. Where have you gone to? 657 Boulevard is missing you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Many Westfield residents compare their town to Mayberry, the setting in the Andy Griffith show. Just trying to give you a little background of what (laughs) this town is like. What? Nothing. That's what people do. Westfield is 45 minutes from New York. This year, and this article was written in 2018. Okay. So this year, 2018, Bloomberg ranked Westfield the 99th richest city in America, but only the 18th wealthiest in New Jersey. (laughs) So... And in 2014, when the Watcher struck, the website Neighborhood Scout named it named it the country's 30th safest town. Okay. The most pressing local issues of late, according to the residents, have been the temporary closure of Trader Joe's after a roof collapse and the rampant scourge of unconstitutional policing, by which they mean aggressive parking enforcement. <laughs> Westfield is 86% white. <laughs> Got it. (laughs) Okay. The Broadus' house was on the boulevard, a wide tree-lined street with some of the more desirable homes in the town. As the watcher had noted, quote, the boulevard used to be the street to live on. You made it if you lived on the boulevard. (laughs) Okay. It was built in 1905. 657 Boulevard was perhaps the grandest home on the block. And when the Woodses put it on the market, they had received multiple offers above their asking price. That led the Broadduses to initially suspect the watcher might be someone upset over losing out on the house. Could be. But the Woodses said one interested buyer had backed out after a bad medical diagnosis, while another had already found a different home. In an email to the Broadduses, Andrea Wood Woods proposed another theory. Uh, would the mention of the contractor trucks and your children suggest that it, it was someone in the neighborhood? Mm. Right. The letters that did indicate proximity. Yeah. They had been processed in Kearney, the U.S. Postal Service's distribution center in northern New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And the first was postmarked June 4th. Uh, June 4th, before the sale was public. Hmm. Curious. 
The Woodses had never put up a for sale sign, and only a day after the contractors arrived, the renovations were mostly... Oh, wait. And only a day after the contractors had arrived. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Wait, it was postmarked a day after the contractors had arrived? Only a... Yeah. Interesting. Okay. It says the first was postmarked June 4th before the sale was public. The width has never put up a for sale sign. And only a day before the contractors okay. arrived. Right, right, right. Got it. The renovations were mostly interior, and people who lived nearby say they didn't even they didn't notice an unusual commotion, even from the jackhammering in the basement. Hmm. Maybe it's the Woodses sending them letters. When Derek and Maria walked to Detective Lugo around the house, they showed him the easel on the porch was hidden from the street by vegetation, making it difficult to be seen unless someone was behind the house or right next door. At one point, Derek was chatting with John Schmidt, John Schmidt, who lived two doors down, okay. when Schmidt told him about the Langford family, who lived between them. Oh. Peggy Langford was in her 90s, and several of her adult children in their 60s lived with her. The family was a bit odd, Schmidt said, but harmless. He described one of the younger Langfords, Michael, who didn't work and had a beard like Ernest Hemingway as, quote, kind of a Boo Radley character. <laughs> I don't think that this is a weird family just because a family lives together like Full House. <laughs> my family lives together because my grandma's old and they live together to take care of her. Well, sure. Her children live there with her. That's yeah, not weird. They don't all live there. Yeah, I guess. No. <laughs> yeah, but whatever. <laughs> Uh, the Langford house was right next to the easel on the porch. The okay. family had lived there since the 1960s when the watcher's father, the letter said, had begun observing 657 Boulevard. Richard Langford, the family patriarch, had died 12 years earlier, and the current watcher claimed to have been on the job for the better part of two decades. Interesting. So it all adds up. Yeah, sounds like it's coming from the watchers in the Langford house. When the Broadduses told Lugo about the family, he said he already knew, and a week after the first letter arrived, he actually brought Michael Langford to police headquarters for an interview. Michael denied knowing anything about the letters, but the Broadduses say that Lugo told them that the narrative of what he said matches things mentioned in the letters. And okay. then the detective said, this isn't CSI Westfield. When the wife is dead, it's the husband. What does that mean? I don't... That It's got to be the Langford guy. Michael okay. Langford. Right. That it's him. Right. Because he's weird. Yeah, And the wife it. is dead. Right. His wife isn't... I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't no, make like, sense, but the, uh, I was like... It's the okay. obvious thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's what he said. Yeah. It's not like a... Yeah. yeah. It's the, the most obvious thing. It's probably the real thing. Mm hmm But there wasn't much hard evidence, and after a few weeks, the police chief told the Broadduses that, short of an admission, there wasn't much the department could do. Uh, quote, this is someone who threatened my kids, and the police are saying, probably nothing's going to happen, Derek said. Probably isn't good enough for me. <laughs> After the second letter, Derek told the cops if the, uh, that if they didn't take care of the situation, they would have a different kind of case on their hands. Quote, this person attacked my family, and where I'm from, if you do that, you get your ass beat, Derek said. <laughs> 
Oh, I thought he was going to say that, like, he was going to murder his kids if the cops didn't do it. No! <laughs> if you uh, don't arrest this Michael Langford guy, I'm going to murder my kids. No. Anyway, frustrated, the Broadduses began their own investigation. Okay. Derek became especially obsessed. He set up webcams in 657 Boulevard and spent nights crouched in the dark, watching to see if anyone was watching the house at close range. He made a map displaying when each of the 657 neighbors had moved in, Mm -hmm. and the Langfords were the only ones there since the 60s, which overlay with overlays marking possible sight lines for the easel and a circle for approximate range of earshot to estimate who might have heard Maria yelling their kids' nicknames. Hmm. Only a few homes fit both criteria. Okay. The Broadduses also turned to several experts. They employed a private investigator who staked out the neighborhood and ran background checks on the Langfords but didn't find anything noteworthy. Okay. Derek reached out to former FBI agent who served as the inspiration for Clarice Starling in The Silence of the Lambs. Okay. And they also hired Robert Lennon, another former FBI agent, to conduct a threat assessment. Lennon recognized several old-fashioned ticks in the letter and pointed to an old that pointed to an older writer. Hmm. The envelope was addressed to M slash M Broadus, and the salutations included the day's weather. Warm and humid, sunny and cool for a summer day, and the sentences had double spaces between them. Aha. Uh-huh. So interesting. Yeah. Don't you put double spaces between I your do. sentences? I do. That's what I was taught yeah, I remember in learning computer that. class, so I did. I remember learning that you were supposed to do that, but I never did I think it. that was like what was in our I've textbook, so that's it. what we learned. Yeah. And then, like, later on in life, they're like, that's not a thing anymore. You don't do that. It's just one thief. And I'm like, well, I do too. (laughs) Anyway, Lennon didn't think the Watcher was likely to act on the threats, but the letters had enough typos and errors to imply a certain erraticism. The first letter was... just dyslexic. Okay. Or... Yeah, I mean, yeah. The first letter was dated Tuesday, June 4th, but that day was a Wednesday. Okay. There was also a seething anger directed at the wealthy in particular. The Watcher was upset by new money moving into town. Quote, are you one of those Hoboken, Hoboken transplants who are ruining Westfield? And the house is crying from all the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. So he's talking about the renovations. Mm -hmm. You are stealing its history. It cries for the past and what used to be in the time when I roamed its halls. The 1960s were a good time for 657 Boulevard when I ran from room to room imagining the life with the rich occupants there. Hmm. The house was full of life and young blood. Then it got old and so did my father, but he kept watching until the day he died. And now I watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. Interesting. Did Mm. did anyone look into the Langford's father at any point? Uh, Yeah, he like... He died. Yeah, and I, I know that. Anything oh. beyond that? Yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. Lennon recommend looking into former housekeepers of their descendants. Uh, perhaps the watcher was jealous that the Broadduses had bought a home that the writer couldn't afford. But the focus yes. remained on the Langfords. In cooperation with the Westfield Police, 
Broadduses sent a letter to the Langfords announcing plans to tear down the house, hoping to prompt a response, but nothing happened. Detective Lugo brought Michael Langford in for a second interview, but got nowhere, and his sister, Abby, accused the police of harassing their family. I mean, they are. They have no evidence that these people did it. And right. just because there's rumors that they're kind of weird, they're, like, <laughs> bringing them in for questioning. Yeah, I know. I don't understand. Eventually, the Broadduses hired Lee Levitt, a lawyer, who met with several members of the Langford family, as well, as well as their attorney, to show them the letters, along with photos explaining how their home was one of the few vantage points from which the easel could be seen. Okay. The meeting grew tense, and the Langfords insisted Michael was innocent. Yeah. Uh, there were reasons to consider other suspects. For one thing, the police spoke to Michael before the second letter was sent, which would make sending two more especially reckless. Right. Uh, then there was the rest of the neighborhood to consider. Right. Uh, the private investigator found two child sex offenders within a few blocks. Okay. And Bill Woodward, the Broadus's house painter, had also noticed something strange. The couple behind 657 Boulevard kept a pair of lawn chairs strangely close to the Broadus's property. Mm. Quote, one day I was looking out and looking out the window and i saw this older guy sitting in one of the chairs he was facing he wasn't facing his house he was facing the broadduses mm-hmm. woodward woodward told them so there's like a man that just right watches you know, their house the langfords are like old and so they can't like keep their house in as good condition so they're like they're bringing down the property values for the neighborhood so they want to get rid of it. the broadduses want to get rid of them probably but By the end of 2014, the investigation had stalled. The watcher had left no digital trail, no fingerprints, and no way to place someone at the scene of the crime that could have been hatched from pretty much any mailbox in northern New Jersey. (laughs) The letters could be read closely for possible clues or dismissed as the nonsensical ramblings of a sociopath. In December, the Westfield police told the Broadduses they had run out of options. And Derek showed the letters to his priest, who agreed to bless the house. (laughs) So, the renovations to 657 Boulevard, including a new alarm system, were finished within a few months. But the idea of moving in filled the Broadduses with overwhelming anxiety. Derek priced out trained German shepherds and posted a job on the website for military veterans. Quote, all you have to do is work out in the backyard every day. (laughs) But Maria said... At the end of the day, it came down to, what are you willing to risk? We weren't going to put our kids in harm's way. Yeah, it makes sense that these are people who think that the vets, the troops are superheroes who are, like, can uh, do anything or are willing to do anything for anybody. Yeah, well. And, you know, whoever's writing this will get scared that they see a guy with a American Eagle tattoo Mm -hmm. on his shoulder. Yeah. Doing push-ups. Doing push-ups, just in the hanging out in the backyard <laughs> right. with a beer. Yeah, I don't uh, like this fan. I don't like these Broadduses. Well, I don't trust hate them. The town more than I think the Broadduses. Well, I'm sure the town's bad too, but I mean the Broadduses are the ones who wanted to live there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it didn't help that the Watcher seemed to be getting more and more unhinged. Oh, six five sell up. 657 Boulevard is turning on me. It is coming after me. I don't understand why. What spell did you cast on it? It used to be my friend, and now it is my enemy. I am 
I am in charge of 657 Boulevard. It is not in charge of me. I will fend off its bad things and wait for it to become good again. I will. It will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient and wait for this to pass and for you to bring the young blood back to me. 657 <laughs> Boulevard needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Let the young blood sleep in 657 Boulevard. Stop changing it and let it alone. <laughs> Why would they want their kids to sleep there if you're like, I will attack them in the basement <laughs> and you will never hear them scream. <laughs> I also would not bring my children to that house. <laughs> the Broadduses had sold their old home, so they moved in with Maria's parents while continuing to pay the mortgage and property taxes on 657 Boulevard. They told only a handful of friends about the letters, which left others to ask why they weren't moving in. Legal issues, they would tell people. Mm -hmm. The couple fought constantly and started taking medication to fall asleep. I was a depressed wreck, Derek said. And Maria and Derek both decided to see a therapist after Maria um, went to a routine doctor's visit that began with the question, How are you? in which caused her to burst into tears. <laughs> so the therapist told them that they were suffering from post-traumatic stress uh, that wouldn't go away until they got rid of the house, and they were suffering from paranor par uh, paranoia, <laughs> depression, and, like, anxiety. Like, major. Like, right. massive. Sure. I mean, they had PTSD from this. Hmm. That's why I'm like, it doesn't seem like they're faking it. Right. Unless... Maybe, like, it's the husband who's, like, going crazy and he's writing the letters, but he, like, is also, like, just because he's, like, going crazy and stuff, oh. you know? And, like, that's why he's all... Oh. Yeah. yeah interesting. Or the wife, I guess, could be doing it, either one. That's interesting. Yeah. Um... But he's the one who got, like, all obsessive about it, you said. Yeah. So, like, I mean, maybe he doesn't know that he's writing the letters. Oh, God. No. Okay, I'm going to keep but, going. I mean, he probably does, but he's just like a crazy person. Ugh. Okay, six months after the letters arrived, the Broadduses decided to sell 657 Boulevard. They initially listed it for more than they paid to reflect the renovations they had done, but rumors had already begun about why the house sat empty. Yeah. One broker emailed to say her client loved it, but there are so many un unsubstantiated rumors flying around ranging from sexual predators to stalker, that they needed to know more. The Broadduses sent a partial disclosure mentioning the letters yeah. to interested buyers and told Coldwell... See, this okay. it gets more and more like, oh, why would they be doing this if they, if all if their only motivation was selling the house right. or... Well, maybe, I mean... Their 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 motivation was selling the house, but they were they were writing the letters and stuff because they wanted to get rid of the weird old neighbors next door, like the whole weird old family that all lives together in one house. And they're like they're trying the their original plan was to like pin it on pin like the letters on them, so they got ran, they ran out of town. Didn't know the Langfords before the letters started showing up. They I, started showing up before they moved in. Yeah, but Before like Before they bought the house. They, well, I mean, they were in, they they would they would have done their research on the neighborhood, acted like they didn't know the Langfords. Uh, I don't think that's a lot of no. No. Okay. No. 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 <laughs> no. Uh I forgot where I was at. The Broadduses sent a yeah, okay, wait, wait, wait. 
The letters, they sent the mentioning the letters to interest buyers and told Coldwell Banker, their realtor, realtor uh, that they intended to show the full letters to anyone whose offer was accepted. Several preliminary bids came in well below the asking price, but the Broadduses weren't ready to take such a financial hit and only wanted to share the letters with likely buyers. No one got that far. Even after they lowered the price, a, Cold, a Coldwell agent uh, who hadn't read the letters told them in an email that they were being unnecessarily forthcoming. Quote, <laughs> my friend got horrible threatening letters about her dog barking, and she didn't think to disclose. <laughs> but the Broadduses insisted. Quote, I don't know how you live through what we did and think you could do it to somebody else. Okay. Or said. they're playing the long game and they're trying to get a movie deal out of this. They're yeah, well, you'll find out why that's not true. Okay. Uh, Derek and Maria thought about what they would have done had the previous owners told them about their letter from the Watcher. The Woodses, both re- the, Woodses the previous owner, mm-hmm. both retired scientists, told the Broadduses that they remembered the letter they received as more strange than threatening thanking them for taking care of the house. Uh, they say they never had any issues. We certainly never feel watched. We certainly never felt watched, Andrea told them. They rarely even locked the doors. <laughs> but the Broadduses felt the name alone was ominous enough to merit mentioning to a new family moving in. Yeah, the Watcher. <laughs> and on June 2nd, 2015, a year after buying 657 Boulevard, they filed a legal complaint against the Woodses, arguing that the Woodses should have disclosed the letter just as they had the fact the water sometimes got in the basement. Hmm. Uh, the Broadduses say they hoped to reach a quiet settlement and their kids still, because their kids still didn't know about the Watcher. And their, their lawyer assured them, at most, a small legal newswire might pick up the story. Hmm. So, skip to, I don't know, soon after. A few <laughs> weeks later. Cameron Hall on the Today Show says, quote, we do some creepy stories, but this might be top 10 creepy. (laughs) A local reporter had found the complaint, which included snippets of the Watcher's menacing threats. And after a belated attempt by the Broadduses to seal it, the story went viral. Hmm. From a safer distance, the Watcher was a real life mystery to solve. A commenter on N... NJ.com suggested a ground-penetrating radar to find whatever the watcher claimed was in the walls. The home inspector had already looked and told Derek the only issue was the aging home's lack of insulation. A group of Reddit users obsessed over Google Maps Street View, which showed a car parked in front of 657 Boulevard that one user thought had a man holding a camera in the driver's seat. Hmm. Others more rationally saw a pixelated glare. The range of proposed suspects included jilted mistress, a spurned realtor, a local high schooler's creative writing project, guerrilla marketing for a horror movie, and mall goths having fun. (laughs) Some people just thought the Broadduses were wimps for not moving in. Quote, I would never let this sicko stop me from moving into a house. Never back down from a terrorist, a neighbor (laughs) said. Yeah. God damn. Uh, so Chambliss, I don't know who that is. I think it's a detective of some sort or the cop. Okay. Knew his colleagues had looked closely at Michael Langford. Yeah, it must be the a, a detective. According to his brother, Sandy Langf- 
according according to his brother, Sandy Langford, Michael had been diagnosed with schizophrenia as a young man. He sometimes spooked newcomers to the neighborhood when he did strange things, like walk through their backyard or peek into the windows of homes that were being renovated. But those who knew him told told Reeves that the old thing, wait, that the odd thing, that the odd things he did were mostly just unusual neighborly kindnesses. Quote, he goes out and gets the newspapers for me every morning, said John Schmidt, who, John Schmidt, who told originally Derek that he, they were kind of weird. Mm-hmm. What? Oh. Rude. It's John Schmidt who's doing it. Uh-huh. He's trying to pin it on People, Michael Langford. Yeah, sure. Yeah. People who had known Michael for decades told Reeves that, um, or told Weidman, I guess Reeves is the first name. It sounds like a last name. Um... People who had known Michael for decades told them that they didn't think he was capable of writing the letters. But I hate it when people are like, oh, I know him. He would never do that. <laughs> no. As Chambliss, Chambliss, I don't know, looked into the case, he discovered something surprising. Investigators had eventually conducted a DNA analysis on one of the envelopes and determined that the DNA belonged to a woman. Oh. Chambliss decided to look more closely at Abby Langford, Michael's sister, who worked as a real estate agent. Was she upset about missing a commission right next door? (laughs) I don't think so. I doubt it. She also worked at the local Lord and Taylor, and Chambliss coordinated with a security guard there to nab her plastic water bottle during a shift. But Chambliss said the DNA sample was not a match. Not long after, the prosecutor's office gave Derek and Maria some unexpected news. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't say why or how, but they had ruled out the Langfords, all of them, as suspects. Okay. Probably from the DNA. Probably from the DNA, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it was like a day, uh, I, it was, they had decided to like press charges against Mm -hmm. uh, the Langfords, and then like a day after they had like decided that the prosecutors uh-huh. were like um actually we're not we can't look into them anymore because uh we're they're not any none of them are suspects anymore so it was kind of suspicious that that happened yeah, that I guess. way but you know mm-hmm. one night chambliss and his i mean i think it's more suspicious that they're not looking into any of the other houses or families around them i know uh one night chambliss and his partner were sitting in the back of a van parked on boulevard watching the house through a pair of binoculars. Around 11 p.m., a car stopped in front of the house. It's long the enough... detective trying to drum up business. No. Long enough for the... Wait. For the cha- for Chambliss to grow suspicious. Uh, he says he traced the car to a young woman in a nearby town whose boyfriend lived on the same block as 657 Boulevard. Okay. The woman told Chambliss her boyfriend was into some really dark video games, including, in Chambliss's memory, one in which he was playing as a specific character, the Watcher. As for the, D- as for the D- female DNA, they figured the girlfriend or someone else could have helped. The boyfriend was living elsewhere at the time, but Chambliss says he agreed to come in that uh, he agreed to come in for an interview on two separate occasions. He did not show up for either of them. Hmm. Chambliss didn't have enough evidence to compel him to appear, and the media attention dying down, he dropped the case and moved on. Okay. 
A woman who, li who lives nearby told Weidman that after the news broke, she and ten or so of the neighbors had gathered in the street to puzzle out who might have sent the letters. What a suburban, like, mom group to do thing <laughs> yeah, to do. Eventually, she said that they came to a consensus. Maybe the Broadduses has sent the letters themselves? Mm. So this is on your theory. Why yeah, are you why, why are was, you doing this? I was looking up what video game he was maybe playing. No, he played as a character called the Watcher. Oh like oh like he made the character named I don't know. the Watcher or the character was already named the Watcher in the game. It's not specified. Could be a character named the Watcher in the game. Okay. But I need you to continue to listen. I'm I'm listening. Okay. The theory was that the Broadduses had suffered buyer's remorse or realized they couldn't afford the home and uh, concocted an elaborate scheme to get out of the sale. Or Derek was cooking up some kind of insurance fraud. Or they mm -hmm. were angling for a movie deal. Yeah, insurance fraud. Okay. Anyway, the movie deal, as you said. The Broadduses received several offers for a movie deal but turned all of them down. And Lifetime eventually released a movie called The Watcher, despite a cease-and-desist letter from the Broadduses. Lifetime argued that the couple in its movie was biracial, and the letters were signed, The Raven. <laughs> I love it. That's but they good. were like, no movies. Yeah, go Lifetime. <laughs> and then they were like, then they were like, Lifetime, stop your movie. And then they didn't. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't for a movie deal. Okay. Yeah, they but there's plenty of any. other scams they could be doing. Okay. Some locals found it noteworthy that over the course of a decade, the Broadduses had upgraded from a $315,000 house to a $770,000 house to a $1.3 million house and refinanced their mortgages. But he explained that he moved up in his job. Yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. Oh, Harry, a few weeks after the letters became public, the Westfield Leader published an article in which anonymous neighbors were quoted asking why the Broadduses kept renovating a home they weren't moving into, or questioning whether they had really done that much renovating at all. The leader even cast doubt on Maria's commitment to her family's safety, citing as evidence the fact that she had a public Facebook page, like her Facebook page, yeah. with a photo of her kids on it. I mean, like, if she was that worried about the Watcher, yeah, she'd get want to get rid of any, like, her kids on her Facebook page. I'm sure she Do did it under after a different the name. fact. All right. Whatever. What That's do you mean not after a reason. After she got the letter. Oh, he was saying before she got the letters? I don't know, but, like, who cares if you have pictures of your family members on your facebook page yeah and i mean but like i don't know okay fine the paper did not did note that the police had tested maria's dna and it didn't match there uh yeah uh there were even more skeptics online quote i live in a neighboring town if these letters have been happening for a while there is no doubt in my mind that it would have been made public way before this Lord Fluffernutter said on Reddit, <laughs> this screams scam, even though they were told by the police to not tell anyone. So yeah. they didn't. Many locals um, Weidman spoke to seemed more concerned that the national press might ruin Westfield's good name. Some were primarily worried about arson or vandalism or whether the Broadduses would maintain the lawn. They did. And Mark... <laughs> 
Lo Grippo, the neighborhood's representative on the Westfield Town Council, uh, told Weidman the primary concern he heard from the residents was that they, quote, were worried about their property value and the stigma of the neighborhood. The Broadduses still had to figure out what to do with 657 Boulevard. Derek looked into renting the house to the Department of Veterans Affairs or, and a company that turns that runs halfway homes. In the spring of 2016, they put 657 back on the market, hoping it might garner more interest given how many people had reacted to the letters by saying they would have ignored them and just moved in. So the Broadduses had a well-attended open house. Harry, are Sorry. you listening? Yes, I'm listening. You're reading your story. I'm not reading. Okay. Uh, after which Derek and Maria spent hours researching every person who signed in and comparing their handwriting to the watchers. But each time a potential buyer expressed interest and met with the Broadus's lawyer to read the letters, they backed out. And some cocky guy from Staten Island said, fuck it, I'm going to get a house at a discount, Derek said. He reads the letters and we never hear from him again. So some guy came in and was like, I'm going to fuck it, I don't care. And then he read the letters and then he was like, nope, no thank you. I don't know if, I'm, yeah, okay, I guess. That's funny. I just, yeah, it is it's funny. It's just kind of a funny, <laughs> this guy was like, I don't care, I would move in. I know. And I just, then he read the letters and he was like, oh no. Right. I was going to say, I just don't know if I 100% believe that that happened. The way he says it did. Okay. I just don't trust these broadasses. Well. I do. Anyway, feeling as if they were out of options, the Broadduses' real estate lawyer proposed an idea. Sell the house to a developer who could tear it down and split the property into two sellable homes. They thought they could get one million for the lot, and subdivisions like this had become common in Westfield, much to the, uh, something of many locals, and 657 was one of the neighborhood's uh, largest lots. Uh, even so, dividing it would require the Westfield Planning Board to grant an exception. The two smaller lots would be uh, 67.4 and 67.6 feet wide, just shy of the mandated 70 feet. Darn. When the Planning Board met to decide the application in January 2017, it had already uh, devoted a three-hour hearing to the issue. More than 100 residents showed up, after a quick discussion about a Wells Fargo branch that wanted to use brighter light bulbs than the town allowed, <laughs> the room grow as, grew as tense as a suburban planning board meetings get. James uh, Forrest, the Broaddus' attorney, explained that the three-foot exemption was as narrow as the easel he was using to display a map of the neighborhood, a map that showed several lots on the block that were also too small. The neighbors expressed concern that the plan might require knocking down trees and that the new homes would have aesthetically unpleasing front-facing garages. The hearing lasted four hours, and at 11.30 p.m., the board unanimously rejected the proposal. <laughs> A New Jersey judge later denied the Broadduses' appeal of the decision. I just don't know what any scam could be at this. They're losing so much money on all of this. The reputation is horrible and they're going through really terrible things like what could they possibly be getting from this that like i don't think it doesn't make any sense i don't know it doesn't okay i i don't i don't know 
On top of the mortgage and renovations, they had paid around $100,000 in Westfield property taxes, the town denied their request for relief, and spent at least that amount investigating the watcher and exploring ways to deal with the home. Why would they spend $100,000 to investigate what was going on if they wanted, if they wanted to make money on this deal? I mean, they said they spent $100,000 on it. Well, they did hire a bunch of people. Okay. We already went through that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, I know, but I mean, $100,000 on a $1.4 million home. That they're, yeah, like, doing res- renovations on to increase the value of. Harry, what? Why do you not see how this is bad for them? I mean, I, yeah. I mean, it could be real, but, like, either way, I don't feel bad for them. Okay. <laughs> Even if they were just people who had these threatening letters sent to them and then their whole life is just ruined? They're people who are buying a $1.4 million home in a snobby subdivision. Okay. Yeah. I know, but still. Um, I know. The Broadduses recognize that, but you gotta look at this as a weird mystery, not like, I don't care, that happened to a rich family. I mean, It's I, just a fun story. It, it is fun. It's a fun story. And you're just like, no, they did it. No, they did it. No, they did it. I think and there I'm are like, a lot you're of... not even thinking about anything because you're I mean, like, I think, no. I think they might not have done it, but I think that I don't, I, I don't think that they, I don't trust who they think did it. I don't. Okay. On top of mortgage and rent... Okay, wait, I already said that. The Broadduses recognized that 657 Boulevard was a beautiful house on a beautiful street that was worth maintaining, but were surprised their neighbors didn't see the uniqueness of the situation. Quote, This is my town, Maria told told, uh, Weidman. I grew up here. I came back. I chose to raise my kids here. You know what we've been through. You had the ability two and a half years into a nightmare to make it a little better. And you have decided that this house is more important than we are. That's really how it felt. Uh, not long after the planning board's decision, the Broadduses got some good news. A family with grown children and two big dogs had agreed to rent 657 Boulevard. The renter told the Star Ledger he wasn't worried about the watcher, though he had a clause in the lease that let him out in case of another letter. Uh-huh. Two weeks later, Derek went to 657 to deal with squirrels that had taken up residence in the roof and the renter handed him an envelope that had just arrived. <laughs> Why would they be doing this to themselves? They finally find someone to rent the property, and there's a clause in it that says they can get out if there's another letter, and then another letter shows up. It just doesn't make sense. I know. To the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife, Maria. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, This letter, two and a half years after the Watcher first appeared, came out of nowhere. It was dated February 13th, the day the Broadduses gave depositions in their lawsuit against the Woodses. You wonder who the Watcher is? Turn around, idiots. Maybe you even spoke to me. One of the so-called neighbors who has no idea who the Watcher could be? Or maybe you do know and are too scared to tell anyone. Good move. 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. My soldiers of the boulevard followed my orders to a T. (laughs) 
They carried out their mission and sur saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. All hail the Watcher. <laughs> All hail. All hail the Watcher. Yeah, I, okay. I think it's John Schmidt, the okay. t two doors down guy. Yeah, I could see it. Yeah. The renter was mentioned. The renter was mentioned. He was spooked, but agreed to stay if the Broadduses installed cameras around the house. I thought they had cameras. I know, me or did too. did take I'm them confused. down when they decided not to move in? Guess so. I don't know. And the letter indicated revenge could come in many forms. And uh, it said, maybe a car accident, maybe a fire, maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away but makes you fell sick day after day after day after day <laughs> after day after day. Maybe the mysterious oh, death it. of a pet, loved ones suddenly die, planes and cars and bicycles crash, bones break. Oh, it's such a good, because like anything that, <laughs> anything happens, that happens to them like, could be the watcher. Yeah. I know. The watcher's just watching and then someone trips. <laughs> like, it's really funny. It's yeah. me, baby. Yeah. So, the Broadduses no longer live in an ever-present fear that the Watcher might strike at any moment, but they continue to deal with lingering My, effects from the letters. If they were f afraid up to this point, why are they afraid now? Because it's been a while and they have a new tenant. They have a new tenant at 657, but the rent doesn't cover the mortgage. Yeah, but the... Watcher vowed revenge. All right, anyway, go on. The kids are occasionally teased at school, and the rumors persist. Earlier this year in 2018, the planning board approved splitting a lot around the corner that required an even larger exception than the promises. <laughs> they hated them so much. Bringing bad publicity to town. The prosecutor's office was continuing its investigation, but the Broadduses knew it was unlikely the Watcher would ever be caught and that the legal punishment would likely be minimal. The Watcher was also no longer the only person... Oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, so... Another reason it probably wasn't the mm -hmm. family... Right. The Broadduses. Was after this all came out, mm -hmm. a house, like a block down on Boulevard, mm -hmm. um, said that they had also, around, like three days earlier, received a letter from the Watcher that said basically the same thing, but they just threw it out because they weren't nervous because they had lived there for years. Right. So someone else got a letter, too, like before the before like, the Woodses got one. Oh, weird. Yeah. Huh. So hmm. that just, why would they... Just send it to a random mass person. Yeah, that'd be weird. I don't know. It just doesn't seem... Mm-hmm. Um, so last Christmas Eve, several families received an envelope in their mailboxes. They'd been delivered by hand to the homes of people who had been the most vocal in criticizing the Broadduses online. It accused the families of speculating in inaccurately about the Broadduses. It included several stories about recent acts of domestic terrorism in which signs of brewing mental illness had gone unnoticed. The type letters were signed, Friends of the Broaddus Family. Okay, this is clearly that that letters from the Broadduses. The people who received the letters didn't know who sent them, but the tone had a familiar ring to Weidman. When Weidman asked Derek Broaddus whether he had written them, he paused for a moment and admitted he had. <laughs> he wasn't proud of it, and he hadn't even told his wife and said that they were the only anonymous letters he'd ever written, and it was due mm. to all the stress and anxiety, like, led him 
to do it after the whole town was really mean to him and ruined his life. So he was like, yeah, I sent them the letters. Um, it's like cancer, Derek told Weidman. We think about it every day. Sitting at the Westfield train station, Derek handed Weidman his phone so uh, they could read the fourth letter. You are despised by the house, it read, and the watcher won. Yeah, so on July 1st, 2019, this is so after this article, uh-huh. on July 1st, 2019, the family was finally able to sell the house for $959,360. They took a $440,000 loss, not including the renovations they made to the house. Damn. And then Netflix apparently... And the Broadduses fought for a really long time, and Netflix won the rights to their story. Okay. So I think they'll be making something. So it wasn't for any kind of movie deal, because they fought hard for stuff not to happen. Mm -hmm. That sucks that Netflix is like, well, now we have the right to your story. Interesting. I mean, did they, they just, they didn't like have to pay them anything for the rights to their story? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they did, but well, I mean, if they like publicly, if they like, if they publicly like, you know, admitted to like getting, you know, ten million dollars for the rights to their story, like that would undercut the whole thing because then it's like, oh yeah, they clearly were just doing this for the movie deal. They they have to like put up a show of like not wanting. Fine. <laughs> I just think after all the stuff they've been through, it's like. Why would they even try to fight it at this point? Right. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's just a wacky story. I think it's an interesting, weird mystery. It and is. And I a... want to know who the watcher is. I think it's the. I think it's John Schmidt. Two doors down. No, you think it's them. You just don't want to tell. Well, me I think that. it's. I think. I mean, I think there are a lot of possibilities. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's someone in the neighborhood who, like, yeah, doesn't. Like them making all these renovations to the house. And, you know, is I think, yeah, John Schmidt's trying to also like pin it on the Langfords to like get rid of two birds with one stone. I don't like how much people hate that family because they're not weird because they live like, like a brother and a sister. Like, two brothers and a sister or something, like, live with their 90-year-old mother. That's not weird. Okay. You don't think that's weird? Or you think that's weird? I mean, it's not, like, it's not a bad thing. Interesting. Because my uncle and his wife and their kids live with my old dying grandma, and they want my dad and... Another one of their brothers to move in to the house. And they would all live together in one house. Are you saying that they're weird? No. Yeah, you are. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. No, I think that the people in this neighborhood think it's weird. You think it's weird. No, I don't. You just were like... It's not a typical arrangement. Yeah, but that's not weird. Okay. Why are they automatically weird? Because they want to live together like a full house situation. There's nothing wrong with that. 
I didn't I say problem with it. Mm. Are you calling my family weird? I think you're calling my family weird. <sighs> okay. Well, let's stop the recording. What? Because clearly you want to fight about this. No. Okay. I just don't like you calling my family weird. I didn't say they were. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I know. I guess I didn't realize how much you'd hate this story. I don't hate it. I thought it was interesting. All right. Just tell yours. I'm I don't done know. with mine. Okay. I'm done. I told my story. I don't think it's them. I don't know who it is. I don't think any of the suspects they have are very. Yeah, I think likely. it could be anybody. It's it could literally could be anybody. <laughs> And I don't think, even if they were caught, I mean, what did they do other than write some intimidating letters? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, if they could, they can't even prove they really stalked them. Right. I mean, kind of, but if you get charged for, like, stalking and writing some weird letters, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you could prove that he wasn't actually stalking them. That he was just, like, at a neighborly event. And learned these things about him. I don't know. Yeah, no, I I like the story. I think it is a fun. I think it's a fun, cool story. And like, you don't have to like feel over too too bad. Yeah, for I don't anybody. really like. I yeah, like I obviously feel a little bad for them, but I'm also like, yeah. how much money do you guys have that you were able to buy that house and spend a hundred thousand dollars for this and a hundred thousand dollars on <laughs> yeah. that? I'm right. like, I don't give a shit. And yeah, they exactly. didn't move out of the the suburb. They decided They've... to stay. They bought another house there. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys are the worst. Yeah. So Why like... didn't you leave? They're like, we're not going to let this man ruin our life. And I'm like, whatever. Well, first off, you know it's a woman. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Okay, you go. Sexists. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm talking about current events-ish. Mine was kind of current. Yeah, yours was yeah, yours was more current than mine is sort of. Oh my god, we didn't talk about the treasure, Finn, treasure. Yeah, I know. I th- I kind of thought I thought that you were going to do it and then Damn it. I w- I, w- I was going to bring Someone it up earlier. Found the what is it? Forest Fen? Yeah. Treasure? Mhm. Man. All right, well we don't have time for that in this episode. So next <laughs> no, week it's I'm going to talk about the Forest Fen treasure oh that's a good one i'll talk about that next week all right cool maybe okay. there'll be more developments in the story by then who cares how long our podcast episode is just tell your story all right okay so for 34 years sweden has been without answers in the Oops. case of the assassination of prime minister olaf palm olaf last week the judiciary closed its investigation naming the killer but leaving so many questions still unresolved. Oop. Oh, man, I should have done The Treasure of Forest Fen, and then we could have both done breaking news stories. <laughs> man. All right, sorry. Continue. I'm interested. All right. Okay, so uh, for the victim. Uh, Olaf Palm was a controversial figure in both Swedish and international politics. He was a staunch democratic socialist and was the leader of Sweden's Social Democratic Party, the party largely responsible for making the Sweden that we know today. Uh, from ni- er, He was the leader of the party from 1969 until his death in 1986. He served twice as prime minister, first from 1969 to 1976, and then from 1982 to 86. Is he a good guy? Am I supposed to like him? 
Yeah, he's a pretty good guy. What's his name? Olaf Palm. Olaf Palm. Okay. I think that's how you pronounce it. I buy it. Um, though some were suspicious of his ar- aristocratic upbringing, he was widely beloved on the Swedish left for his expansions to the social wel- welfare state and anti-imperialist foreign policy, and despised by the center and the right for raising taxes on the wealthy and supporting the labor unions. Um, he made enemies abroad for, with his vocal and economic support for uh, of third world governments and liberation movements. Palm harshly criticized the U.S. for its imperial wars in Asia and support for right-wing authoritarians in Latin America and around the globe. He also particularly earned the ire of the South African government for his criticism of apartheid and support for the movement to boycott and enact sanctions against the country. So, yeah, overall good guy. Okay. But... On the night of February 28th, 1996, Palm and his wife, Lisbeth, were walking home from a movie theater. Uh Uh-oh. Palm tried to live as normal a life as possible as prime minister, and since political violence was virtually non-existent in Sweden, he hardly ever traveled with a bodyguard. Uh, This would be one of those occasions when he didn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, Olaf and Lisbeth were walking down Sveavägen, often known as the busiest street in Sweden, when at 11.21 p.m., a tall man in a dark coat walked up behind them, put a hand on the prime minister's shoulder, and fired a Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum point-blank into his back. He fired a second shot, grazing Lisbeth's back, then ran away up a staircase to a parallel road above. A crowd of people rushed to Palm, trying to revive him, but he was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital six minutes after midnight. Liz, did Lisbeth live? Yeah, she was fine. Okay, was She good, died least. in uh, 2018, I think. Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yeah. Sucks. I know. So, uh, five days ago, as you're listening to this, or as this comes out, on June 10th of 2020, Prosecutor Christer Peter- Peterson... Um, revealed that the tall man in the dark coat was Stig Engstrom, a graphic designer who worked at an insurance company near the movie theater. Many had suspected Engstrom was involved in the murder for years. In 2018, a freelance journalist named Thomas Pe- Thomas, Thomas Pedersen uh, published ex- his extensive research, which also pointed to Engstrom. Um, so Stig and Engstrom was originally one of about 20 people who claimed to have been an eyewitness to the assassination. Oh. Hmm. Uh, it is known that Engstrom uh, clocked out of work and chatted with security guards at the main entrance to the Scandia Insurance Company only one or two minutes before the shooting. Mm-hmm. And some 20 minutes later, Engstrom returned to the building to tell the guards about what had happened in the street. After that, he is believed to have gone home. Uh, he claimed to like be the first person on the scene to to like get to Olaf Palm's body and like try to revive him, is what he said. Hmm. Um, which I mean, doesn't sound right. He could <laughs> he just ran be. Away. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, I know. They watched I mean, him that run could up. be why he could be explaining why he like had uh, I don't know like blood on him or something. Oh, probably. Yeah. Uh. So early on in the investigation, Engstrom gave the police inconsistent reports on his movements throughout the day and around the time of the assassination and often contradicted statements by other witnesses. Like, Hmm. you know, no one else said that he was the first person to the body. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> the police originally treated him as a person of interest in the case, but grew frustrated with him and determined that he was just a publicity seeker, um, just causing a nuisance. Oh. He was just... The police were like, this guy oh, well. clearly doesn't know, actually know anything about the case because he's like, you know, contradicting all these other witnesses. He's just trying to get attention for himself. <laughs> Good cover. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and he did seem to seek out publicity. Um, Engstrom had appeared on television at least once before the assassination on like a, I don't know, TV news report about like gender in the workplace or something. Oh, um, um, And he... Uh, and then after it, he appeared in Swedish media several more times over the years um, where he like criticized the police handling of the investigation and criticized their lack of interest in his testimony. He even uh, staged a recreation of what he did the night of the assassination, which was broadcast on television. Oh, my God. They didn't suspect this guy? <laughs> what a weirdo. Uh, he, he contacted magazines himself in order to tell his story and to talk about the case. I guess people were probably like, this guy's just crazy. Yeah, this is, he's, he's trying to insert himself into the narrative because, you know, he's That's a nobody. That's do. He's just this, They you try know. to get really involved in the case, mm, usually. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. like certain ones, like this guy. <laughs> uh, the prosecutor, Peterson, said of Engstrom that later, when they looked back into him in recent years, quote, how he acted was how, was how we believe the murderer would have acted. You know. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I guess his uh, Engstrom fit the psychological profile of the killer that mm-hmm. Swedish police had fit out. And according to several witnesses, including the prime minister's son, who they had like, I guess they'd like maybe seen the movie with him so that he was like a ways down the street when the shooting happened. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, he filled the physical description of well, as well, mm-hmm. of the person. Um, Engstrom had a long, had long running financial problems and a growing problem with alcohol at the time. He was 52, um, in 1986 and hadn't advanced in his career at all. According, according to the journalist, Pedersen, um, Mm -hmm. uh, he had little family and was generally frustrated with his life. Um, people, (laughs) people close to Engstrom said that he was right wing and hated Palm. Um, he was a member of a local right wing political group that was vocally critical of Palm socialism. Um, Engstrom had served in the army in his youth. And at the time of his, the assassination, he was a member of a local shooting club. So he knew guns and had access to them. Um, a connection was found between Engstrom and a weapons collector who shared his anti-socialist belief and hatred for the Prime Minister Palm. Um, And in 2017, the weapon collector's house was searched and they found a gun matching the one used in the murder, though it couldn't be definitively proven to be the murder weapon. Hmm. Mm -hmm. They never looked into this guy? Like, they never, like, were like, well, maybe we should just look into the weirdo who's being weird. Well, I mean, at the beginning, you know, they looked, they thought he was like a person of interest and they're like, you know, then they were like, he's just being a nuisance. He's trying, he's just, you know, um, and then like, so, and so then this, this journalist, uh, Thomas Pedersen, he like, and another author also like wrote a book that like kind of, uh, pointed toward Engstrom, but this journalist after he like published his stuff or he like sent stuff to the police and then they started like looking into this guy again in like 2017, Hmm. basically. Okay. Um, Engstrom committed suicide in 2000. Um, and so since he's not alive, the prosecutor said there would be no prosecution 
And even if he was still alive, or at the time he was alive, the evidence that they had against him uh, was would be too circumstantial to take to court. Yeah. Um, There's no actual evidence there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He said that they still do not have a clear picture of Engstrom's motives, and that they could not rule out that he was a part of a larger conspiracy. Hmm. And so, yeah, I know. Why would he just do it by himself? Oh uh, yeah, Sounds I mean the me. the journalist who like wrote about it said that he was you know he was down on his luck and just wanted attention basically. Okay, I don't know. I mean, could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so about the that larger conspiracy. Yeah, I want to know. There have been a lot of theories over the years. Um. Some of them, some of them name like specific people who they think did it, and some of them are just more about like a larger conspiracy and like groups who could have wanted to it mm-hmm. so with his bold socialist internationalism olaf palm made a lot of enemies um this along with numerous false confessions and the fact that so little headway was made in solving the case over the decades allowed numerous conspiracy theories to flourish um so first the pkk the pkk okay yeah one of the re- reasons Engstrom wasn't looked into more while he was still alive, like at the beginning of the case, is that the lead investigators were convinced that Palm had been killed by another leftist group, uh, mm-hmm. the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or hmm. PKK. PKK. And, and, okay. Um, so Palm's government had recently labeled the PKK a terrorist organization, um, and so they figured that it's, this was kind of like in retal- a retaliation for that, basically. Yeah. Um, soon after the assassination, the Stockholm police commissioner, Hans Holmer, um, worked with an intelligence lead to arrest some 50 Kurds living in Sweden, um, but turned up no evidence uh, linking the organization to a crime or the Kurd to linking the PKK to the crime. Okay. Um, the Kurds are a ethnic minority from the Middle East, if oh. people weren't aware of that. Okay. <laughs> it's from like... Um, it's, it's a region, Kurdistan, where the Kurds are from, is a region that, like, encompasses parts of Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and Syria, basically. Okay. And so, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, so, so he, he arrested these 50 people, turned up no evidence on them. Um, and so, after this, Homer resigned in disgrace, uh, but continued investigating the PKK and Kurds in Sweden mm. um, on his own. Like, (laughs) until he was arrested in 1988, smuggling illegal wiretapping equipment into the country to surveil them. Oh, God. Um, But the theory kept popping up over the years, though, um, usually being suggested by the Turkish government, um, who frequently, um, you know, do uh, ethnic cleansing against the Kurds and generally try to keep them from gaining political power in their country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the closest thing to evidence ever to come up was in 1999 when the PKK's leader, Abdullah Ocalan, Ocalan uh, was on trial in Turkey for treason. Um, he denied that the PKK had anything to do with Palm's murder, but said that he had information that a rival group led by his ex-wife and her new husband was behind the killing. <laughs> oh, no. Well, I don't know. About that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do it, but my bitch ex-wife and her my, new man did. I can tell did. you did. <laughs> my bitch ex-wife. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's the P- the Kurdish connection. Now, the Indian connection. So in 1986, uh-huh. 
uh, the year of the murder. Yeah. India ordered uh, 8.6 billion do- billion uh, kroner uh, in cannons from the Swedish weapons firm Bofors. Okay. It's like a billion dollars worth of like weapons. Uh, The Indian government was buying from a Swedish company. Uh, The largest weapon sale in Swedish history. Um, On the morning of his assassination, Olaf Olaf Palm had had met with the Iraqi ambassador to Sweden, who supposedly informed Palm that a bribe of 320 320 million kroner had been deposited into a middleman's Swiss bank account in order to push the sale through. Um, when he allegedly learned of this, Palm allegedly called a senior Beaufort's executive, whom he berated for the criminal malfeasance, you know, uh-huh. doing this bribing and stuff. Um, so, you know, Palm risked losing credibility as a proponent, as a proponent for disarmament and as the UN arbitrator for the Iran-Iraq war and yeah. like general like peacekeeping stuff if the deal went through. Um, so theory suggests that uh, someone with a stake in the deal had Palm assassinated in order to stop him from blocking it. Either, you know, someone with this company or someone in India mm-hmm. wanted to have him killed. All of India did it. <laughs> yeah. Every Indian person was in on it. Yeah. Just when you said India, it was like all of India did it? <laughs> no, just in the Indian government, I guess. Okay. See that? I don't sense. know. Or, if, those, if that's you know, it's, story is real, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, he did. He did that morning meet with um, you know the Iraqi ambassador, um, who's I don't I didn't put his name in here, but his nickname is Baghdad Bob, and he turns up in a lot of other like Baghdad weapons Bob. dealing uh, stories and stuff. Baghdad Bob. Um. It's anyway, it's a fun name. It is a fun name. So we're on to the Chilean connection. Oh, my God. Uh, there's a theory that Palm was killed by Chilean fascists Everyone because him. he had given asylum to a great number of Chilean leftists following the coup that overthrew Salvador Allende. Okay. Um, so Swedish journalist Anders Leopold linked Chilean fascist Roberto Tieme to the case. Uh, he was head of the most militant wing of Patria y Libertad, a fascist group um, in Chile financed by the CIA. Um, In 1979, seven years before the assassination, an American named Michael Vernon Townley told the FBI while being interviewed about his connection to a different assassination Mm -hmm. um, that he had been given orders by his Chilean sponsors to attempt to kill Palm at a 1976 conference in Madrid. Hmm. So, yeah. So a lot of people were out to get him. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Every... Every right-wing government in the world hated him, basically. Yeah. Um, next theory, the cops. The yes. The fuzz. The fuzz. Over the years, it has been suggested that right-wing elements within the Swedish police and security services um, were responsible for his assassination. There were several costly mistakes and breaches of protocol made in the hours and days immediately following Palm's assassination. The crime scene was not cordoned off properly, covering too small an area. One of the bullets wasn't found until a passerby picked it up days later. Uh, mourners were able to slip under the police tape to leave flowers right next to the pool of blood, 
uh, where he died and made it impossible to search for the killer's footprints. Hmm. Um, key witnesses were allowed to leave the scene without being questioned. Uh-oh. Like, a reporter on his way home was, like, in a cab, like, talking to the cab driver who, like, said that he'd been there and, like, saw it happen but <laughs> hadn't been talked to the police at all. And I was like... But also, so I feel like, like they're probably really bad at policing there because they're not that... Mm-hmm. They don't have a lot of stuff to do right. in Sweden. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And they don't do a lot of police stuff there, I don't think, right? I, I don't they're think so. They're not, like, as intense as right. we are here. So mm-hmm. I feel like they're probably, yeah. like, There's I don't know what to do. There's a much lower homicide rate in Sweden. So like, Yeah, why would they know? They know. were probably like, dude, have you ever done this? No, mm-hmm. I no. haven't. You know, but even the stuff that they div- did have in place, like they had the Stockholm police have a system for searching the inner city, the inner city street by street, but it was never deployed. Squads of police tore around looking for the gunman, but had almost no information about what he might look like. Trains, ferries, and flights continued as normal, while the roads and bridges out of the city remained open for hours after the murder. Um, and it's I, like they just don't know what to do. You know, I already mentioned the immediate fixation on the PKK, which uh, connection went, which went nowhere. Yeah. Um, and wit- witness reports of men with walkie-talkies near the witness reports of men with walkie-talkies near the crime scene hadn't been taken seriously by the police. I guess. Oh well, I mean, police suck, so they're yeah, good at their job, and <laughs> they suck. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if they were somehow in on it, or just really stupid. Right. Because they it are. could be. <laughs> It could. The only person convicted of murdering Palm, Christer Pedersen, was a petty thief, drug user, and alcoholic whom Lisbeth Palm had been coaxed into identifying out of a lineup. Um, like they like told her like um, before she looked at the video lineup that they thought that the killer was an alcoholic. Oh my god! And she was like, "Oh yeah, it's him." She was like, "You can tell he's a big drinker." <laughs> Yeah, um, they suck. And so Pedersen appealed the sentence and spent less than a year in prison before being acquitted due to lack of evidence. Um, yeah. Oh, I, I skipped a sentence, but you know he's you know he's the sort of criminal who you know you could easily pin a crime on if you wanted the investigation to go away quickly. Yeah. Yeah. They do that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, People yeah. do that. According to Jacobin. Uh, what limited scrutiny makes evident is that there is a large contingent of Swedish police officers with right-wing extremist views, many of whom openly yeah, express sense. hatred for Palm. Um, there are reports they probably of, just didn't care. Yeah. They were probably like, oh, and Yeah, probably. I mean, well, there are reports of police officers celebrating his death with champagne oh my God. when they heard about it. No. In 2010, declassified documents revealed that some right-wing officers claimed to know who the assassin was. Um, in 2012, one of Palm's sons claimed that on the night of the assassination, his mother actually had called the Se- Swedish security service to get a bodyguard to accompany them to the movie, um, but was told that none were available. Um, but the uh, oh, I mean, the Swedish security service denies this or says that maybe the mother is misremembering what happened. Um, okay. But yeah, I don't know. It's possible, yeah, that all of this is... It's you know it's possible and entirely likely that these mistakes are only mistakes or negligence. You know, the homicide rate in Sweden, yeah, is very was already very low, so the police yeah, would have probably, probably been like, caught eh. flat-footed. Like, if anyone was shot in the middle of a busy street, yeah. wouldn't know what to do, and no attempt had been made on 
the life of a head of government in Sweden since King Gustav III was assassinated 194 years earlier. So uh, no one ever yeah. there had experience with it. Yeah. So like this was happening. This this was like totally unthinkable and like yeah no yeah threw the nation into disarray. Nevertheless, no investigation has been conducted into the potential involvement of police or other security services. See it? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a theory that the KGB did it. Um, cool. Uh, so some of those right-wing police officers likely believed a popular conspiracy theory at the time, which was that Palm was a KGB agent himself. <gasps> Whoa! Yeah. Cool. So there, and so there's a theory that both Palm was a KGB agent and that he was killed by his own agency. Okay. Um, so yeah, he wasn't being very smart about it. So. <laughs> From Jacobin, this theory has it that during a secret meeting in Switzerland, KGB agents entertained the idea of having Palm, quote unquote, swept away yeah. for refusing to follow the orders of his supposed Kremlin handlers. However, something purportedly went wrong. While the top brass in the Soviet leadership was never informed of the alleged plans, the kill order was said to have been entered into a computer somewhere in the KGB's bureaucratic apparatus. <laughs> while, those alleged, the, while those allegedly responsible for both the initial plot and the clerical error were never identified, a KGB officer was twice questioned by Swedish investigators. Mm. Okay. You know, that's something. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not what happened but it could be it was probably not <laughs> but it's cool mm -hmm. okay and uh okay so the last one south africa okay uh, this is this is the theory that i've heard the most over the past couple of weeks as yeah. i've seen people talking about this uh -huh. so palm was one of the most prominent critics of apartheid and made no secret of his disgust with the south african regime okay their policy. Um, so a week before he was assassinated, Palm had given a fiery speech before Paul, Parliament condemning the South African government and saying that, like, it, apartheid cannot be reformed. It must be abolished. And, like, we need to, you know, get rid of them and support the, you know, dissidents in South Africa and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, he was a strong supporter of the African National Congress, um, which is the... Uh, anti-apartheid group uh, or party led by Nelson Mandela, as well as other African liberation movements in Namibia, Mozambique, and Angola, hmm. um, which the South African government also saw as threats to the you know capitalist white supremacist order or colonialist mm -hmm. white supremacist order. Uh, the South African... South African intelligence had infiltrated several European anti-apartheid uh, organizations, um, including some of those backed by Sweden, and was known to have assassinated and kidnapped ANC leaders and other anti-apartheid activists. Um, they certainly would have seen Palm as an adversary. Um, in 1996, a former South African intelligence officer, Colonel Eugene de Kock, uh, gave evidence to the Supreme Court in Pretoria, alleging that Palm had been shot and killed because he, quote, strongly opposed the apartheid regime, regime and Sweden made substantial contributions to the ANC. De Kock named Swedish mercenary Bertil Wedden as being involved with the conspiracy. Uh, at the time of his at the time of his death in 2004, journalist and author Stieg Larsson, uh, who wrote uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, 
in the rest of the trilogy, mm -hmm. um, was investigating a theory that South African intelligence services had conspired along with Swedish right-wing groups to assassinate Palm, and that it was Wedden who had recruited like the killer. Um, Wedden also allegedly helped the original investigator, Holmer, investigate the PKK. So, like... Okay. This this guy who is connected to, like, the South African intelligence and other, like, right-wing groups within Sweden was the one telling the first investigator to look into this totally non-connected Kurdish Middle Eastern group. So that's interesting. I don't know. Um, yeah, the I think Stig, Stig Larsson's theory is, um, like, yeah, that, like, South Africa and... Um, basically the Swedish arm of Operation Gladio. Do you remember when I talked about that? Mm -hmm. the, yeah, CIA made like right-wing networks to keep out communism. Like they both wanted Palm dead, but for different reasons. So they like decided to team up and like, you know, pool their resources to like recruit people and get him, get him, get him dead. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So what's this theory about the guy they think actually did it? Um, Why do they think he did it? And why, if if all if any of this is real, why are they saying that this other guy did it? Well, so it's possible. So this guy, the the guy who did it, or the guy who they're What's saying, the guy's name who did it, um, Stig and Engstrom. Okay. So he he has ties to like, um, you know, right wing political oh, groups and organizations. So he could have been, like so been groups. Yeah. So like, for, like he's part of the group he's probably the trigger man but they don't um, but they say that you know they don't know his motive or like whether he was connected to like ah, a bigger conspiracy so he's probably connected to so one he of could be like yeah he could be like the person recruited by south africa or whoever yeah to do it okay yeah that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. probably yeah, probably i don't know hmm. um yeah so apparently in march of this year the Swedish investigators went to South Africa to like, um, and or met with the um, South African intelligence to like look through their files. Um, but no, no findings from there have been released from that trip. So, are they going to look into it any further now that this guy is like? I I read something that they dead. were going to like. I guess they're not really going to. I'm not. I read something. I read both that like okay. they're they're closing the case but also now they're gonna like start looking into the conspiracy more so i don't know if both are true or like neither are true or one is true yeah they're gonna yeah be looking more into whether he was connected to some larger conspiracy i think okay yeah cool so uh that's that's the olaf palm assassination and related conspiracies yeah yeah i hope so too keep a keep a lookout for that yeah all right. Well, I think we've gone long enough. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. An hour and a half. Yeah. Do you have anything else left to say? Nope. Cool. Um. Well. Great. What? Thanks for listening. <laughs> yep. Thank you. I've been Harry. I'm still Carly. And this has been... Known Unknowns. Now, have you ever thought about this, maybe? The doctor is a woman. Because it's weird out there. Bye. Bye. <laughs>